So I, I wrote that it, although it had a lot of energy, I mean, it's a good introduction to the album for for good and bad, I suppose. Sure, has, yeah. but it sounds like the band is hanging on by their fingernails. Oh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> like this is they're at the top of what they can do. To one of the simplest songs you can imagine. <laughs> That's yeah. what's strange about it. That's the paradox. Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to talk about music from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, give some deep dives, hopefully give you some insight on the process of making the album and the song structures, and at the end, vote on whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. This week, we will be listening to the album New York Dolls by the band New York Dolls. Very excited to dive into that, get some uh, really in-depth looks at some of these tunes. But before we do that, I'm going to throw it over to Rob, who is going to reach his hand into that virtual reader mailbag that we have and uh, find out if there's any positive, negative, or general comments from this week from the fans. <laughs> well, what we screwed up from the last three to four weeks. Bring it on. Thank you so much, Tom and Adam. So today we have a, a comment on a recent episode and a comment on an old episode, which I always like to pair those up. So first we have listener Paul writing in. He said, I just finished the brown sugar episode. Thank you for ruining another favorite of mine. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yes, it's a, that's our pleasure. That's exactly why we started this, to ruin things. No, he says, only kidding, although I didn't fully agree with everything you said. I accept what you said somewhat reluctantly. I love your takes, even though I do find myself screaming at the speaker sometimes when you guys make Oof. comments. All right. We love it. We love it. Tell us where yeah. we're wrong. Get more specific, listeners. Please, please let us know. We started this podcast to learn more and to be schooled by the avid fans such as yourselves. And here's an old one, one from the archives. Eric, coming to us from Tucson, writes in, love the podcast, guys. Wanted to specifically thank you for turning me on to Spirits, 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. I, yes! I, yes, that was episode number 24. If you got, you got to scroll all the way down to get that one. Eric said, what a strange and beautiful record that I had somehow completely overlooked. Yes, Robert California, or Johnny California. What was his name? Something California was the, the uh, singer's the, name. The Danny Randy. California? Randy. Randy California, Randy yes, thank California, you. yes, yes. Yeah. Fantastic album. Awesome. Thank you, listeners. Exactly. So please keep those those missives coming our way at 1001 album complaints at gmail that's the number 1001 album complaints at gmail yell at us get other people to yell at us tell us where we're wrong tell us where we're right tell us what you're enjoying and tell us where you're listening from always fun to hear that excellent excellent thank you rob for sharing thank you to everyone who writes in thank you to everyone who listens we have a ton of fun doing this 
And this week, we are going to just keep that fun train on rolling with this album, <laughs> New York Dolls. <laughs> Something like that. By New York Dolls. Released in uh, July of 1973. Before we go too in-depth, we're just going to give you a quick taste of what you can expect from this album. We're going to play a bit of the first tune off of it, Personality Crisis. Thank you all. Now, this is the part that I love the most. I want to hear general impressions, your your initial quick tweet-length review. I'm going to throw it over to Adam first. Hey, this is Adam, everyone, and my quick review is Shitty Aerosmith. <laughs> okay. All righty, all righty. I mean, I can't say you're wrong. Rob, <laughs> let's throw it to you. Yeah, I wrote a slightly longer one. So this week was my first time listening to New York Dolls, and to me they sound like your co-workers' thoroughly average-sounding bar band that you felt socially pressured into seeing. But 50 years on from the release date, maybe that is the real triumph here. And I have to say, like most bar bands, they seem to kind of warm up into themselves, but perhaps it's just because I'm a couple beers deep and starting to have fun in spite of myself. All right, fair enough. And this is Tom here. My tweet length review on this is if I have to see your outfit to be able to get your music, you have focused on the wrong thing. (laughs) So let's dive into the New York Dolls, the infamous New York Dolls, again, released in July, July 27, 1973, which, as I pointed out in the text string to you guys earlier, was Renowned by none other than Sir Bob Geldof as just a really boring and unproductive time in music. I watched this documentary, which was great because it also had Morrissey on there being a jackass and saying that, like, (laughs) people forget how terrible music was in 1973. Bob Geldof's exact quote is, you must remember that from the point of view of anyone that really loved music, music was dead. Either it's stupid heavy metal or it's this nonsensical prog rock rubbish. This is a direct quote from a man who was knighted by, by the... <laughs> what an asshat. Wait, wait, yeah, wasn't he that, friends with Pink Floyd at this point, who were producing their best material? Not, yes. And possibly the best material of all time? I'm going to just go through a couple of albums that were released in 1973. And we the can Aerosmith just, we just debut get, album, we which is get, why I said that. <laughs> we have Greetings from Asbury Park. We have Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. 
We have Burnin by Bob Marley and the Whalers. We have Trace Ombres by ZZ Top. Countdown to Ecstasies by Steely Dan. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road from Elton John. Jesus. Aladdin Sane from David Bowie. Inner Visions from Stevie Wonder. Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd. You will notice that not a single one of those is heavy metal or <laughs> prog rock rubbish, okay? <laughs> what are you talking about, Bob Geldof? Anyway. Wow. Anyway, Bob Geldof sucks ass. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. I knew he was bad news when he shaved his eyebrows off in the mirror. Uh, listen, so, but let's talk about where that comment is even coming from, because I think that's probably is good context for the record. Because I think that what this band thinks of themselves as, and, and maybe where that comment is coming from, is this hangover from the 60s. From the 60s garage rock, from the peace and love movement, from the Jimi Hendrix sort of era of music, if you will. And maybe there's a group of people, I'm just, this is the most charitable read I can give that that there's this group of people who haven't moved on from that and who are still lamenting the death of all those major rock stars and whatever, annoyed that Black Sabbath is now dominating the airwaves with their admittedly kind of dumb music. I love Black Sabbath, but their music is a little dumb, to be fair. Although this record's sure. also dumb. I'm just... <laughs> to be... <laughs> yes, to also be extraordinarily fair, this record is a little dumb. That is being pretty charitable. <laughs> I here's here's the way that I kind of interpreted it, and I found it funny that Bob Geldof would think that this is a positive thing, but it almost you could look at you could look at New York Dolls as the people that started this trend of non-accomplished and non-professional musicians making really popular music because they're objectively not good at their instruments. And that was definitely a change from all these virtuistic, you know, you got Edgar Winter group out there making crazy music. You got you know, the guys in Pink Floyd. All these people are very proficient. And this is like the birth maybe of non-proficiency. But I think like the Stooges were kind of doing the same stuff at the same time. They weren't particularly all that proficient. These guys were definitely listening to the Stooges. So I think the Stooges, they definitely predate the dolls and were a strong influence on them. In that scene. So, yeah, you can't even really say they originated something, but that's yeah. an, it's, it's an important note because that's my context for this. I could tell from the texturing, actually, just as Adam was complaining more on the texturing before the recording, <laughs> I just decided that I wanted to take an adversarial position to a certain extent. So the question is, did were they the progenitors of something important? Is this important contextually? Because I don't I'm not going to disagree with you guys that it's not a very good listen in 2022. You know, as I think my tweet implied, but yeah, they seem like they led to a place that we that none of us really appreciate that much, which is untalented people getting on stage. We're talking well. We're talking about <laughs> punk rock. They've been they've been basically claimed as the birth of punk and the birth of glam rock. Glam rock is ridiculous because David Bowie has been doing that since before them. Okay, yeah. So t- I, yeah, right. I want to get right out ahead of it with two examples that I ha- felt they need to listen to during this week to as comparison points. One was Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which came out before this. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, one, they didn't invent glam rock. But, and maybe this is a mark in their corner. Listening to Ziggy Stardust now, image-wise, I think Bowie was way ahead of them. But I will say that that record is surprisingly crisp and produced and orchestral, like more so than I remembered it. And so I think what they're tr- what the Dolls probably would say is they're trying to get back to this bar band you know, garage rock approach to music. Now, whether we can debate whether they're successful or not. But then separately, I also listened to the first Ramones record. 
But that first, I gotta tell you, that first Sharon's record is good. It's got nothing but good melodies and hits. And you could say that they aren't that great at their instruments, and that's why they craft simple songs, whatever you want to say. But it's much better. It, it's it holds up much better than this record. Sure, they. I mean, that came after this record. It certainly, did. but I could see that. Yeah, maybe there's no Ramones without New York Dolls. I that I could buy that. Let's talk just a little bit about them leading up to this album. They formed in 1971. They were really young when they formed. I think they were like 1920, like around there. And a big part of what they were trying to do was image. We probably should name who is in the band before we start actually talking about them. We have David Johansson on vocals and harmonica. We have Arthur Killer Kane on bass, Jerry Nolan on drums, Sylvain Sylvain on piano and guitar, Johnny Thunders on lead guitar. I believe it was Johnny Thunders and David Johansson were starting like a a boutique, like a fashion boutique. And that's how they got their, their like got together. That's I have a little extra information here because for some unknown reason I decided to read Sylvain Sylvain's memoir this week. Okay. <laughs> so that is actually Sylvain Sylvain and the original drummer, a guy called Billy Mercia. Oh, they were the ones who started that. Okay. Yeah, and it it is kind of interesting to think about that they were very fashion they had a fashion brand that was actually kind of successful and then they sold it to a bigger fashion brand as the band was taking off. And they were really into making their own clothes, designing their own clothes, making their own clothes. For a while, they set up up in Woodstock, kind of at the end of the 60s. This is before the band happened, obviously. And they thought of that as their career. So I thought that was a, at least a little bit interesting. And I have to say, for a for a haggard rock star, this guy Sylvain Sylvain does seem fairly, fairly cogent. I thought another interesting thing about his background, just interesting for an American rock and roller you wouldn't expect. He's Egyptian by birth. And he's an Egyptian Jew. That's why he changed his name. <laughs> And uh, he was forced out of Egypt when Nas- after Nasser. You see, you get history on our podcast too, guys. Yeah, right. Take it, take it away. <laughs> after Nasser came into power and nationalized the Suez Canal, there was this wave of, of ultranationalism within Egypt, and they pushed out all the foreigners and all the Jews, even the ones who had been born in Egypt. So their family kind of had to flee, and that's how he ended up in New York. But also had this kind of forward-thinking, non-American style. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I knew that it was two of the guys who were setting up a uh, a boutique, but that means that they were always image first, right? They they were yeah. very image conscious, very totally. into that, and basically like they were just a bunch of scenesters, right? Just kind of. I remember somebody was saying that like they they wouldn't even take the stage until after midnight. Like they were like the quintessential like Manhattan party scene band that would get together and you know have raucous parties. And what was one quote from uh, David Johansson, who basically said, like, everybody thought we were gay, like my girlfriend thought we were gay, because I would borrow her clothes, and like we kind of just then decided to lean into it and play it up and be like, yeah, because at the time, that was actually dangerous, because it was legitimately right. illegal right. to be gay, or to engage in, in gay York, sexual right. acts. It was legitimately right. illegal to do that. But even there, they were coming pretty close on the heels of that whole Andy Warhol, Velvet Underground factory scene in New York. Like, they started out meeting each other and hanging out at Max's Kansas City, which was, like, the big... And and even playing at that venue, that was, like, the big hangout for those groups. And it slowly transitioned to these other clubs, and eventually CBGB's, the big punk club, came around, right? But... They weren't really ahead of the curve on that either. I, I don't know. I don't think you can even no, give them credit. I'm not for saying that. they were ahead of the curve. I'm, sa- I'm actually saying that they were they were scene kids because they were swimming in this scene that already existed. They didn't create the scene. They yeah, they were certainly swimming in those waters. Um, which 
I will tell you, listening to this album on many occasions, I said, you know what? If I was like railed out of my mind on Coke in the 70s, seeing this in a club in New York at two o'clock in the morning, this would probably be pretty great. Yeah. I'm not digging listening to it in my car. I watched some of their live stuff. I think it was from 72, maybe before the album came out. And yeah, it was in, it was rocking. I mean, it was a tight club. It was a black and white video and they're they're the amps are cranked and they're doing their thing, you know, and it's uh it's not good, but I could see how if I was there. <laughs> energy again, energy above everything mind. kind of approach. Yeah. Energy and style yeah. above everything. Yep. And in that sense, get this out of the way early, Tom. They kind of reminded me of our band the chop a little bit (laughs) yeah yeah i'm not putting any of our albums on the list though (laughs) (laughs) right but i i like to think you you know we could talk about some of those similarities so i'm just saying i feel somewhat akin to them the difference to me was we were always trying we put style and energy at the front of the list to cover up for our lack of skill at times in, in an attempt to get better and to build that skill and to have substance behind it but like to sell it with energy. I feel like these guys are just like the whole game is energy and style. There was something intangible. And I I deliberately didn't really look up much on these guys. I wanted to be surprised about their backstory. And it doesn't surprise me at all. There, There was something intangible about listening this week where you could just tell these guys thought that they were super cool. What's the old thing is that like when you're really cool, you don't need to be told or know or think that you're cool. You're just cool. Like David Bowie never went around probably thinking that he's the shit. He was probably just like, I'm David Bowie and I'm myself. Whereas these guys, I feel I like think everything they do. The All right. Yeah, come, <laughs> come on. <laughs> but the way these guys sell it is just, yeah, it just came, it came off through the album. Uh, just through the a lot audio. Of, a lot you know of attitude. I mean? there, there's a lot of attitude with this band, certainly. And you can yeah. love that or you can hate that. But they were very much trying to get a lot of attitude out there <laughs> they they strike me yeah unearned confidence i feel like is a coin we termed here yes, on the podcast yes. but also to harken back to your scenester comment tom and just how they work generationally compared to those late that late 60s period that very fruitful period and even very artistic period in the new york music scene you know whether you like it or not they feel like a little brother band in the sense that they're just a little bit behind and they're trying mm-hmm. to make up for it yeah I could see that. Listen, they got a ton of buzz in New York, though. They played around New York, and that is actually at the time when, like, New York journalism and New York music journalism specifically was the sort of dominant voice in music criticism. And so critics have always loved them. They were always critical darlings in the New York scene. And part of me thinks it's probably because... You know, they were going to those aforementioned two o'clock in the morning sets, railed on cocaine and having a great time and being like, these guys are fucking awesome. Like, we should totally, everyone needs to see this band. It's like, yes, but not everyone can be in your 120 person club at two o'clock in the morning. You know, if you're in Kansas City, you're not exactly going to be able to replicate that experience. But either way, got a ton of buzz musical like critical darlings that they're parlayed that into some opportunities to play shows in Europe. And aforementioned Billy Mercia, their original drummer, died in London at 21 of an overdose when they were playing over there. They got to play for, they they played at Wembley Stadium, opening for that band Faces, which that's a pretty big deal. But Rod Stewart? Was was that Rod Stewart's band? I don't know if he was in the band at that time, but that was his band. Okay. Okay. So 
Super so bummer. They're young, man. Yeah, they're young. Right. Billy Mercy overdosed to 21. I think that was in 1971, 1972. Because I mean, they formed in 71. So all this kind of happens really fast. It happened fast, yeah. And they and this is before they cut the record. So they had to replace him. And then the, that guy's not on the record. Yeah, he's not on the record. So basically, because they had this reputation very well earned as a hard partying kind of drug fueled band like groupies trash in hotel rooms they were doing all that shit like you said rob trying to keep up with the big boys maybe like trying to be like i heard led zeppelin does this maybe we should do this too yeah they it was really hard for them to get a record deal nobody wanted to touch them and it wasn't until they came back and they actually played at that max's kansas city show that somebody from mercury records was like you know what we'll give you a shot sign him to a two uh, to a two record deal and basically at the at the time that they were signed i think a couple of the members were too young to legally be signing a contract and had to get their parents <laughs> to sign for them like these guys are these guys are living the high life it, it sounds pretty awesome i have to say i can maybe understand why they didn't take the time to sit down and like take lessons and, and learn all their stuff their yeah I mean, you know? if i'm 17 and someone's telling me i got to go play in all the the new york yeah. clubs with a rock band yeah cf and g will do for right now yeah and this was a time of much debauchery if it's not clear oh. It's, yeah oh yeah yeah these and these guys were again so much attitude so much image they can't be the guys that are like no 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 i you know what I'm not, I'm not really that into cocaine. I think I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pass. <laughs> My stomach's a little upset tonight. I don't think I'm gonna slug whiskey with you. My, you know, like they have to be going hard all the time. I'm gonna drop a couple little anecdotes I got from this memoir in here, but one was that they actually played a gig at a gay bathhouse in Manhattan. But almost funnier than that, and they were like a little scared by the attention they got in that bathhouse. Like apparently they were on the on the tiles, you know. But uh, but then Sylvain Sylvain said that previously he had gone to said bathhouse and he saw Bette Midler play there with Barry Manilow <laughs> on piano. Wow. But let's just also say that in a completely tiled room, Bette Midler and a grand piano are going to sound a lot better than a rock band. <laughs> I mean, you might as well sit in an echo chair. Oh, good yeah, God. But it sounded like shit. The point is they had some audience overlap. I was yes. going to say, if you're going to have debaucherous anonymous sex, would you rather be listening to Bette Midler or listening right. to this band? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they uh, they get this record deal, two record deal. They go to record it at the record plant in New York City over the course of eight days. And who does the record company pick to help them produce their album? Todd forced, Rundgren. <laughs> forced at gunpoint, it sounds like, from some of the stuff yeah. that I read. I, on, it sounds like it was mutually forced at gunpoint. It wasn't like Todd right. Rundgren was like, I want this so bad. You got to get me in there. He was like, ah, oh, Jesus, I'll take the paycheck, I guess. I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, the, I heard it. my favorite Todd Rundgren quote that he apparently said to them during the recording, perhaps multiple times, was get the glitter out of your asses and play. Yes. <laughs> yeah. By all accounts, it sounded like they showed up in like three quarters drag and oh. high heels and we're just like, mission accomplished. Like, just this is all we need to do, right? And he's like, no, you need to like perform the songs adequately for recording purposes ideally play them the same way a couple of times and they would have like people coming in it's like he said it was crazy so todd rundgren uh what what is it uh 
David Johansson said of Todd Rundgren that he is an expert in second-rate rock and roll. <laughs> they basically thought that he was a, like a outdated music snob who was just making shit music. And the thing that I think is the fucking funniest is it, it took me a while to make this connection. After leaving New York Dolls, David Johansson creates this alter ego of Buster Poindexter and has the success with that song, Hot, Hot, Hot. Like, hey, people laughing, everybody laughing, feeling hot, hot, hot. He's responsible for that. He is responsible for that. He didn't even write that. He That's like a cover right. of his. Todd Rundgren had a song that I've always tied together in my head, that song, I don't want to work, just want to bang on my drum all day. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're like the They're like same song. Songs. Yes, Denizens yes. Of, uh, of Toyota commercials. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And here's- President's you know, Day sales. Right. Yes. Yeah. Here's David Johansson talking shit on Todd Rundgren, and like the most success that he had in his entire career was basically aping a Todd Rundgren song six years later. <laughs> Just uh, let's get let's get two degrees of separation back to Adam's original tweet. Todd Rundgren was had a long term relationship with Baby Buell, who then cheated on him with Steven Tyler, creating one Liv Tyler. Whoa! Wow! It all it all comes full circle. But then apparently Liv Tyler grew up thinking that Todd Rundgren was her father, and that was only revealed to her much later. Oh wow! That sounds. Not great. E true Hollywood story <laughs> stuff. I know, there. Yeah. Remember that. Yeah. So very contentious recording session. Rundgren thinks they're like a novelty act joke. Thought they were super unprofessional, which kind of sounds about accurate. And they get to the point where they're mixing this the album, and Todd Rundgren tries to basically kick them out and say, like, just get the F out of the studio. I'm going to mix it. You obviously don't want to be here. And they insisted that they would have to be there for the mixing process, but also that it only takes half a day because they had shit to do. <laughs> so they mixed the whole album in half a day, and you can 1,000% oh, tell. like that. Yeah. yeah. There was a couple punches in here that were so blatant that it actually made me stop and hit, and hit rewind. Uh, where you could tell that the again it was just sloppy studio work. If you have half a day to get in there and do it, they obviously didn't didn't do a super clean job. I mean, it didn't ruin the song or anything, but it was just yeah, took me out of it. The writing did that for it. Yeah, the writing ruined right. the songs. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> apparently, Rundgren the punching. Apparently, Rundgren purposefully mixed the drums really low because they were so horrible. And the funny thing about it is that this is the drummer that they hired after being on tour in Europe. They could have picked a good drummer, and they got this. There's the story that Todd Rundgren had to literally go into the booth at one point and with a cowbell make a click track for the drummer because he just couldn't stay on beat enough. And he's like, you just have to, you just have to play along to this click track because otherwise you're speeding up and slowing down. You can't get it, which, I mean, come on. I would just say, I, yeah, I can't dispute any of that, right? And again, I don't really see myself ever listening to this music again, but I think the counterpoint like what they might say was that they were purposely trying to push against like that's not rock and roll man you know and i i get why that's silly to say but in those older eras we've talked about it in the 60s you know a few scant years before this it was much more common partly because of recording technology limitations but partly just because of aesthetic to leave mistakes on the tape to not worry as much about bpm or tempo you know, all this kind of stuff to mix, I'm sure, very quickly and accept that it wasn't going to be perfect. So 
I don't know sure. if they were actually thinking like that, but I just I imagine they were they were trying to be anti-establishment, so it's not that surprising. I don't dispute you in any way, shape, or form that they would leave mistakes on the tape in the '60s. They would leave speed up and slow down during hard songs played by good musicians, not <laughs> during easy songs played by bad musicians, because that's really what it comes down to. Like these songs are fun, but they are not doing anything difficult or anything yeah. new sonically, and that's kind of what I have a problem with is that they get lauded as this sort of like their freshness was something that kept coming up when people talking about how like it was this fresh new sound. I was like, it's just them playing kind of an older style of music, but bad. And I don't particularly find that to be a fresh new sound, but let's debate it in depth. Let's jump back into the first song of theirs that I had ever heard which was Personality Crisis. Rob, you and I, when we were up recording in Grass Valley, watched one of those Burt Sugarman's Midnight uh, Expresses and or Midnight Specials. We saw them perform, and I remember being like, oh, these guys are interesting, but I, have no, I had no recollection of the actual song or the actual music that was coming out. I had a recollection yeah. of the way that they looked and the way that they mm. acted. So anyway, let's jump back into Personality Crisis. All those times you butterfly no about you was butterfly not a personality crisis you got a Adam, I want to hear from you because I, I know that you're going to have a litany here of complaints. And then Rob can give <laughs> well, a counterpoint. This uh, this song was potentially the f- the quickest that I went from being optimistic to absolutely hating it, which was 14 seconds because uh, like seconds zero through 12, it's rocking, and he starts screaming, "Yeah, yeah, yeah!" I'm like, "Okay, okay." Then he starts screaming, "No, no, no!" And it's just the worst <laughs> thing ever. And I was like, "Oh, you suck! This is terrible!" And so it was a, a 14 second run of me being optimistic about this week, and then you know it was that no, no, no where he threw that in there. I was like, "Oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing." He told you just how to feel. I don't. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So I wrote, I can't believe this is their biggest hit, by the way. I and that they're lauded on top of all that. But do you remember this is a this is a pull, but do you remember in the nineties MTV had a contest about being becoming a VJ? Like a normal person could compete and become a oh, VJ. Oh god. And yes. this guy, Jesse Camp, who Jesse? Yes. like a grizzled heroin addict draped in scarves, <laughs> uh won. And they and part of it was that he got a record contract, and I that was one of the first things I thought of. I was like, "This sounds like the record he probably made." I'm now I'd never heard it. <laughs> it's got to go on the focus list. Oh, that's but go on the uh, the playlist. I will tell you, I went back and found it. It's called the the album is called Jesse and the Eighth Street Kids with a Z. <laughs> And the only song I sampled, I can tell you, is the the most popular song, See You Around, which is also the first track. And it sounds exactly like this, except slightly worse. 
But only slightly. <laughs> only slightly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I mean, this song's like that. We got a personality crisis. Got it while it was hot. That's a good line. It's delivered yeah. well. Yep. Yep. That does not a song make. Uh, I needed a lot more than that. Yeah. And David Johansson cannot sing. No. And he has terrible mic control. On this song particularly. Yeah. It's all over the place. It's la- And that's when he starts screaming the no, no, no. You can tell because they actually overlap two tracks of him screaming no. And they don't line up well. And it's loud and quiet. And it's just a, yeah, a mess. So I, I wrote that it, although it had a lot of energy, I mean, it's a good introduction to the album for, for good and bad, I suppose. Sure. Has, yeah. But it sounds like the band is hanging on by their fingernails. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, this is, they're at the top of what they can do. To one of the simplest songs you can imagine. <laughs> That's yeah. what's strange about it. That's the paradox. I ended up watching that documentary, New York Doll, about their bass, <laughs> about their bass player, Arthur Killer Kane. And one of the anecdotes from there and a couple of people said this was that apparently he could not breathe and play at the same time. <laughs> so he would take a big breath and then play and then, and then play and let it out again, which is hilariously terrible at your instrument. You cannot breathe and play at the same time. So, so I, I heard it. Yeah, I heard an anecdote about him that right before the midnight special taping that you previously mentioned, Tom, that you can find on YouTube, that his girlfriend stabbed him in the thumb, and that it, and that it was his playing thumb, whatever the hell that means. So they had a roadie play instead, even though he's he is on stage, he's just miming, and then Sylvain Sylvain was like, "Yeah, I mean, we got way tighter immediately." But anyway, <laughs> well, apparently at one point in during the recording session, Todd Rundgren just like walks into the room while they're recording and plugs his bass amp in because it wasn't plugged in and he didn't realize that he was just playing along to it. He, I think he was all he was apparently also a notorious alcoholic, right? Like he drank a lot. I got some. So, all right, we're, let, let's just jump into this right now because this this shit is fascinating. All right, so Arthur Kane. After the uh, after the New York Dolls breakup, basically he was in a pretty adversarial relationship with David Johansson. Kind of saw him as a rival. Kind of did something with Johnny Thunders, but everything sort of fell apart. And by the kind of late, like mid early eighties, he wasn't playing music at all. He was sort of completely out of the music scene. He ends up seeing Buster Poindexter in Scrooged as the cab driver on TV gets really pissed off about it and jumps out of a second story window and takes a header into a planter and 
definitely like messes himself up. All right. Jesus. Then in 1992, he is walking home from a party that the Red Hot Chili Peppers had thrown, and he is randomly attacked and beaten unconscious and left in a ditch and has to relearn how to walk and talk. Oh, my God. He is now. He's a Mormon. He works in like the genealogical <laughs> records room for the Mormon church in LA. His coworkers are these sweet old ladies and they're interviewing him in 2004 because he's going to go play the Morrissey's mel- uh, Meltdown, which the New York Dolls reformed for the for that. They play one show. He hadn't played on stage since like 1984. Jeez. He had to go and get his guitars out of the pawn shop and like one of the guys from the church is like, yeah, the church gave him some money to get his guitars out of his pawn shop because we found out that he was paying $172 a year just to keep himself current on the loan so that he could but the the his base was at the pawn shop and he's paying him $172 he's like and then we found out that the loan was $262 to pay off <laughs> and it just never occurred to him to pay off the loan at $262 <laughs> Well, now I see. Now I feel bad for laughing at this guy. He clearly has brain damage. He clearly yeah, has brain damage. Uh, I understand he had those accidents, but I think he was a lumbering dolt before, also, because I believe they wrote the song Frankenstein about him. Oh, you mean Frankenstein original? <laughs> Which actually, I really thought that was funny because they were like, "Yeah, we've been playing that song," and then Edgar Winter came out with his Frankenstein song, so we put Frankenstein original on ours. And they, and they might be confused. <laughs> yeah, they might be confused. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. I am surprised that nobody picked up on uh, him saying frustration instead of frustration. It annoyed the absolute hell out of me. I figured, Rob, that the uh, <laughs> the English major in you and Tom, the English major in you, would have would have stood out because I've I've heard mispronouncing it as frustration. That supposedly that makes you smound less intelligent. <laughs> So well, I think that's a New York thing because there's a podcast that I listen to that has a very New York guy. He always says "frustrated" really? every time. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm not even aware of that mispronunciation. To be honest with you, yeah. I was listening. I was listening so desperately to the vocals that, uh... <laughs> which, by the way, get worse as the song goes on. <laughs> His vocals Definitely. deteriorate over the course of the song. Like you said, they are like just barely holding it together, and he's pushing his vocals, pushing his vocals to the limit on the song. And when you say vocals, he's got all the chops of like an amateur pro wrestler hurling <laughs> insults at his opponent in the ring of a grade school gymnasium. Like that is his, that's where he came from. Yeah, it, re- it reminded me of. When you're in a live band, when you're only in a live band, you are often shouting above the din of what I'm sure was a very loud band in a small room with not great sound. And like maybe he himself, it I think the show is on the on the tape. He doesn't actually know what the melodies are even supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would agree with you. They never bother to solidify a melody. What they're like uh they're like the B52s, right? They just never bother to really solidify anything. Just keep it loose, man. Yeah, man. I'd rather listen to this than the B-52s. Just going to throw that out there right now. Oh, no. I'll take B-52s all day over this. It depends. I'll take Cosmic Thing B-52s. All right, all right, all right. B-52s first album. I I think I'm taking this one. (laughs) Let's let's move on to the next song. And I'm going to pronounce it the way that it is pronounced in the song. Vietnamese, baby. (laughs) 
Yeah, tell tell me tell me your your uh, defense of this song here. No, no, this is absolutely the worst song. <laughs> hey guys, you know how Asians like gongs? We should use one of those in the song. What do you think? That'll yeah. be cool. That'll make age sure really get, great. That'll age <laughs> yeah. well. Make sure I get my make sure I get my credit in the liner notes though for playing the gong. <laughs> I thought one of the funniest things to me. I really do think this is the low point of the album for me. The guitar line right at the beginning, like thirteen seconds in, he just lands on a dud of a note and then just keeps <laughs> like he's trying to will the song into a different key <laughs> well i think that maybe it might be more accurate to say that he has no concept of what key the song is in and uh neither does anybody else and so <laughs> right sort of, yeah but he committed damn it yeah i i'm sure you can talk about that noise what is that helicopter noise is it, are there weird new 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 year's eve noisemakers strapped to the drumsticks or something what is that? That's not what I was going to talk about, but I mean, this this is clearly a very professional drum organization here. These guys keep tempos rock solid. Uh, I'm like, my initial note is that like the first 20 seconds of this song, I was like, oh, this could just be like, if you remove the terrible lyrics and the terrible vocals and the terrible vocal melody, this could be a David Bowie song. If David Bowie only hired shitty musicians, like <laughs> right. it's a lot of caveats. Yeah, it there. kind of sounds like a David Bowie song played by shitty musicians with not David Bowie singing. Well, the, I, and that is—I uh, know I said I was going to defend this, and I haven't been defending it very effectively because these songs do kind of <laughs> suck. These, I think, I think the record gets better in the second half. I think they get a little bit tighter. It's still not great. But yeah, this is a clear low point. But it's so, as you're alluding to, it's so close to music I like. It sounds like drunk Spiders from Mars, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I could say. Or maybe heroined out Spiders from Mars, but like sure. past the tipping point of heroin Spiders from Mars, maybe. It's just, and this is a vocal melody thing. The melody for the song is so terribly constructed because we've talked before about a chorus. How should a chorus operate in a song? A chorus should feel like it's something different from the rest of the song. It should feel like oftentimes it is a, a build. It's a triumph. It's something that kind of elevates from the rest of the song. And the way that he has constructed this vocal melody is that at the very end, he hits a note and then he sit, plays that. And then he sings that exact note for almost all of the chorus. So there's like no change from the pre-chorus to the chorus. And it makes it so muddled and jumbled. And then the only change that he does is at the end that means baby in your mind. And that's like, <laughs> that's not a compelling chorus. Oh, you have one note that you've already burned that note previously in the pre-chorus by singing that note for several seconds before you then sing it for several more seconds in the chorus. 
that's the kind of thing that you'd think that if they had any faith in their producer, like Todd Rundgren could have helped them with that. He could have been like, oh, hey, definitely. yeah, hey, right, here's something right. else we could do. But Todd Rundgren was checked out, and they were brimming with confidence and probably cocaine. <laughs> As we move through the album, my notes continue to get more and more sparse. Just because <laughs> I kind of like wasted all my anger and rage up front so by the end as i look at my notes here i'll have very little to say on the last songs but one of my notes towards the end was like i'm so glad for that focus list because i wasn't able to get to the back half of the record very often without it <laughs> yeah and then i was like oh yeah. these are actually pleasantly yep. surprising comparatively some, some of the better songs are on the end of the album i still think personality crisis is like it's a very poorly recorded and very poorly performed kind of banger of a song like i could see it being like a nice like fun live song but vietnamese baby i don't care <laughs> yeah. what venue it is it, 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 this song's terrible but it's not the worst song on the album in my humble opinion mm. let's move on to lonely planet boy it's Nothing in common. <laughs> no, this, the intro is exactly the uh, breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, God, one. Deep Blue yeah. something. Oh. I didn't even know what you were referring to there. <laughs> this is a dime. This is a cheap as hell Stones imitation. Like, yeah, we got <laughs> oh it, dude. Oh, my God. You listen Shitty Mick to, Jagger. That's my, that's my line. Yeah, <laughs> you listen to Dead Flowers and Jigsaw Puzzle or whatever those other slow Stone songs are from the era, and you... I, I, here's the thing. I think they were huge Rolling Stones fans, and I know we haven't gotten to the Rolling Stones yet via the Albinator. I assume they'll come up one of these days. But the Stones in this period were really, I think, masters of the kind of loose, tight aesthetic that I think the New York Dolls think they're they're getting, but they're, they're not. To, but they're not. Yeah. They're just loose, loose. <laughs> yeah. You can be loose when you're a beast at your instrument. And objectively, is I'm not a, I'm not the biggest Stones fan, but those guys are good at being musicians. They are good at being a band because they've been a band for a long time. And part of this is the, the learning curve of being able to gel really quickly in a band when you have, can barely play your instrument. A couple of years into like you know you've been doing this for two years, you can barely play your instrument from the beginning. It's hard to gel. It's hard to really get that ability to kind of slink around in a pocket or have any kind of pocket. That being said, this is this song's a low point basically because they're not playing to their strengths. Their strengths are not contemplative songs. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the second that I pick my head up from 
whatever, you know, debaucherous scene that I'm in and like take a moment to reflect. That's when I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I need to leave. Right. <laughs> you got to keep it going. You keep the train rolling all the way through the end. It's got to be this kind of blur. And this gave me a point to just be like, yeah, you know, there's so many better things I could be doing with my time right now than listening to this for the fourth fucking time. This this one also was odd, too, because they throw in this saxophone mm. occasionally that pokes through. And, of course, it's not in key. Uh, but that that was my, my one, well, of many negative notes. But there was actually something that may have inadvertently them being bad musicians but actually turned out to be kind of cool. At the one minute and 30 second mark the acoustic guitars there's two of them they're split up right left channel the one in the right channel is playing a chord that is completely different and almost doesn't (laughs) share any of the same notes as the guitar in the left but it's not it's not objectively bad and i think it might be an accident like i think the guy just doesn't know what he's playing and he just got lucky because it actually sounds kind of cool a song from your other boys that's when I'm a lonely rally boy trying it's like um that like beginning of hard days night chord or whatever where it's just like you know two different it's like guitars all playing the notes. It's like yeah all right the notes. yeah yeah I just I can't I can't understand why anybody let David Johansson go, yeah, 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 <laughs> again and again and again as a very integral part of the song. He just butchers it every goddamn time, and it's so distracting. Like, I cannot get over it every time it comes around. I'm like, it's like four notes, dude. Like, I, I have a cold. I've been coughing this whole time. I can hit that, yeah, 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 <laughs> better than he does pretty consistently. And then, like, right around the two-minute mark, there's these weird, like, he does these weird sighs. He's kind of like, ah, yeah. Like, why are you doing that? It's so weird. The shitty saxophone player is trying to play terribly. He's trying to, you know, secure his spot on Adam's, uh, you know, theoretical orchestra of terrible musicians that has, what, John Cale and, like, both the chicks from Bell and Sebastian in it already. (laughs) Adam, you're going to have a dream team. This is amazing. I'm going to start constructing this. Adam, your problem is you don't like music. It doesn't sound pleasing. (laughs) Got to get over that, man. <laughs> I do call myself yeah. an artist. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a song that um, I wanted to hate more than I did. Trash. Trash won't pick it up. Take them lights away. Trash won't pick it up. Don't take your life away. Trash won't pick it up. Don't try to take my night away. I think you like this song, right? 
Just yes. my guess. Yeah, this is my personal favorite. I think th- I'm pretty sure this kicks off side two. I didn't actually check, but it makes sense. And I think side two in general really kicks off. It actually made me wonder if Todd Rudgren had like bigger sway on the second side, either from an arrangement perspective or a mixing perspective, because you get some nice, in general, some more gelling of vocals and some other nice passages through this. But on this tune in particular, I thought it had good energy. Like it felt like a nice distillation of what they were going for with personality crisis, but but executed in a in a better way. And it's the melody that stuck out to me. You know, when I listened to it in passing a few times, I feel like it's the one that it's the most likely to make it to my mixtape. So this was the first single off the album, just to be clear. They had confidence in this one as well. And actually, in, in that interview that I uh, in an interview I saw with David Johansson, he introduced himself as David Johansson, the the author of the song Trash. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's that's what you're hanging your, your hat on. Okay. Yeah, I actually agree with Rob. This was actually my favorite tune on the album. I, uh, Rob, I see the what you might consider the Todd Rundgren influence. There's, I guess, it's like the second half of each verse where the chord changes and it goes into a bit of a uh, a swing almost. It just it it changes from that hard hitting guitar, and that felt nice. It felt like a '70s rock change that that my ears perked up because it wasn't just one four five the whole time and that yeah that felt like maybe rod uh, todd rundgren was like hey what if we and somehow convinced them to try it once and they're like oh, this is great <laughs> yeah i also and this is indicative of the kind of thing i was looking for generally when i hear the terms proto-punk or punk is this melding of 70s and kind of 50s girl group because i think that's was some of the that was some of the stated influence of that movement and i think at 218 on this track you get that little girl group super chorus section that just felt like a nice breather yeah this song is the song is good i wouldn't necessarily say that it is fantastic i think it's it's three minutes and eight seconds, and it feels too long. So that's not exactly um, a huge compliment, it's just because there's not a lot to it. But I do agree that there is more production involved in it. You can hear those the backgrounds that are going trash. Speaking of the length, though, just to play off that comment, what it really made me think of, like it belonged on the Freaks and Geeks soundtrack, which is mm. both a compliment, meaning it would be a cool find to put on a soundtrack of a hip, nostalgic show, but also a disc, meaning like I kind of need some visuals to go with it because maybe it goes on for a while. Sure. Or also that um, what they really would use is like, you know, 26 seconds of it in a passage in the show and then True. move on. Yeah. True. Which would, yeah. which would help. We got it. Yeah. But you do actually hear, and this is the one time on the album that I can actually hear that there is some kind of like studio magic going on. They take those backgrounds that are going trash and they kind of do like a towards the end of the song. You hear me like trash. They're kind of getting sped up and slowed down and like affected. I was like, oh, that's clearly Todd Rundgren doing that. It was like his contribution there. Although it has been rumored that he has that he actually went in and like sang some backups on this album uncredited to Mm. try to get the actual, you know, backups to gel. I buy it. Yeah. I think yeah. I think the mixing took more than half a day. I think the dolls went home and took more speed, and I think Todd Rundgren stayed, <laughs> stayed for a, a cu- stayed. at least a couple days. He, they they forgot they recorded the back half of the album. He was like, "No, no, we're done now." Yeah. now and he's on the side too. 
go home. Yeah. Or, yeah, maybe it was, like, they're all, like, yeah, I'm really invested in, like, the, my sound, and then, you know, you get to track two, and they're, like, I, I'm still, still pretty invested. You get to track three, they're, like, uh, you know, are we going to be done soon? <laughs> Starting to feel like work, just, man. Yeah, yeah. Right, this, just, is, this reeks of work. <laughs> yeah. And their whole thing was that they didn't have a lot of money to do it, but they got the equivalent of, like, a $100,000 advance from the record label to make Oof. this album. Which like was it eight days? Eight days it took. Eight them, days. I read hundred grand. Yeah. Hundred grand for eight days seems pretty damn expensive. I gotta tell you. Again, the yeah, the drug budget, the drug and whore budget, yeah, right. <laughs> and also platform shoe budget for these sure. guys. I'm sure. Yes. Sure, and the wigs. I gotta yeah. say, I do kind of like the cover of this record. We don't. The don't cover, cover. That the picture cover. is fantastic. Yeah, that is. I mean. They knew what their strengths were. Their strengths yeah. were attitude and aesthetic. And they killed it on both of those on that cover photo. They apparently would not dress as draggy for their shows normally. They they played it up a lot more for that with a lot more makeup to make them look a lot more feminine. Which, kudos, kudos to the makeup artist there. Because David Johansson, a.k.a. Buster Poindexter, is not an attractive person. No. He is objectively a weird looking dude. And get him some nice makeup, get some lines for the cheekbones going. They did, they did a lot of blending there, I think. And he looks good. He looks good in that picture. Like, he, he looks not like the weird kind of troll that he is. <laughs> yeah. I think I think Arthur Kane is the guy on the far left. He looks... Yes. It's, like, pretty menacing. Like, a, <laughs> definitely a murderous... Oh. Yeah, Trip. no, he totally had the the Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs <laughs> right, thing going right, on. Right, right, right. He's going to wear totally. your skin. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, fun times. Cool. So let's jump on to the song that it took me a long time to figure out was a cover uh, of a Bo Diddley song, song Pills. Ah. If I had to guess, this was the one that I think Rundgren jumped in to do the assist on the backing vocals, because these backing vocals gel in a way that nothing else on the album gels. And I'm not yeah. even talking about just vocals. I'm talking about their instruments don't even gel the way these background vocals gel. This is the one where I said, when I heard this on the focus list, I was pleasantly surprised because A, I didn't make it this far in the record very many times, and B, <laughs> I wrote, is this the best mix song on the record? Yes. Yeah. Definitely the best mix song on the record. Well, who played harmonica? You said one of the guys played harmonica because the harmonica intro in this tune ain't bad. That's David Johansson's the singer. Okay, it. I mean, it's not super complicated, but it it fits the tune. Now yeah. just, just drop in some Bob Dylan blowing into that thing <laughs> to make Adam sound ridiculous. <laughs> Damn it! Oh yeah. I mean, 
This song was good, but it is kind of unnecessary. Again, it's, you know, you listen to the Bo Diddley version of it, and it's kind of, it's less slapdashy punky, um, but it's, you know, it's really the same arrangement and stuff like that. It's basically the same thing, and I don't know. I didn't realize it was a cover, but yeah, I found it much more pleasant than the songs in the first half. And But I, to be honest with you, right now, I cannot call it up in my memory, not any one piece of it. <laughs> keeps talking about the rock and roll nurse it going to my head going to my head as i was lying in a hospital bed and then they kind of have the you know just that shouty vocal delivery that by this point in the album i'm just tired of being shouted at i kind of just want somebody to sing at me yeah this tune i felt the the drums i know he had to bury them deep in the mix but you can really hear just how it, it sounds like if you threw me on a on a kit right now and said play along like yeah i i can't play drums i can maybe keep a four count but it sounds like i'm playing drums to this song it's just so like so much hesitation there's no commitment to anything it's like it's just listen to it again if you have a chance i think it's like rob said skinny your teeth you know you're like you're not doing anything special when you're worried about fucking up all the time and yeah yeah i think too there was a mismatch in the in the drug addictions within the band and when your drummer is i think taking I can't remember if it was speed or heroin, but and then the bass player is a drunk. You know, they got they, oh, if it doesn't match that's, up, that's bad. That's yeah, <laughs> it's real bad. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta have complementary drug drug addictions. You know what? I will say the one thing that really comes through on this song is the, all the fishnets that they were wearing. I can really hear that <laughs> on this song. <laughs> <laughs> that is the thing that I do actually find kind of funny is that they showed up like in full regalia to the studio and Todd Rundgren's like we're gonna put in like 14 hour days what the hell is wrong with you like why are you it's doing just this? us yeah. what are you doing well it's I know it's hard to grasp at now but one of the things this guy Sylvain said was that that was kind of just how they dressed they didn't have stage costumes and this is separate from the album photo shoot they didn't literally dress in drag all the time but they were and part of the reason they found each other is because they were these extremely flamboyant weird dressers and they saw this movement as being very fashion forward partly because you know of their of the fashion background that we described and to be honest like even out even after them i think other people took on that that mantle and made a lot of money on punk fashion in parallel to punk music. Oh, hell yeah. Nobody is more fashion conscious than punk, than like punk rockers. Yeah. You can't just be like, I got a t-shirt and jeans on. It's like, that's totally not punk. You got to, you know, especially in that era, you had to have so many outward signs that this is what I am doing. It's not like a casual thing that you can just get into. So these probably were some of the first guys that were wearing ripped T-shirts and jeans with safety pins in them and, you know, patchwork stuff that they made themselves and floral prints and just like a lot of weird. They were trying to be weird and freak out squares, basically. Yeah. And, you know, good on them. I'm sure the squares were freaked. Like I said, it took them a long time to get a record deal because everybody thought that they were gay and, and drug addicts. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, you're not really all that wrong. So, like, <laughs> these guys must have towered over the audience as well. They're all wearing like four inch <laughs> platform shoes on the album cover. I can imagine seeing them live and just thinking they're like larger than life. It's funny because I heard Sylvain mention that they were all short men. <laughs> so I think that might be why. Well, so right. maybe they just so evened them out. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, you know, I think 
that uh, Arthur Kane was kind of tall. I think mm, that he was maybe. tall. I don't, you know, I'm going to blow your mind here. I didn't look up how tall he was, but <laughs> somebody did. Just, how dare yeah. you not have that ready for the for the yeah. episode? He was described as being an imposing person um, and uh, like somewhat menacing person, uh, just in his presence, his overall presence. So he does look again. He he's got a little bit of the crazy eyes going on. I mean, I get it. Alcohol will make you do some crazy things, especially if you've been a serious alcoholic for a long time, but seeing a former bandmate on television and you just dive head first out of a second story window that's not a normal person's behavior that's let's just let's just put that, that is out not. there yeah you're probably already having a rough go of it if that's uh, yeah. the reaction yeah. rob if i see you in some you know uh bill murray production down the road uh, i'm not going to all of a sudden like you know shoot my toes off or something like that <laughs> right Although credit where credit's due, we haven't really mentioned it, but David Johansson's turn in Scrooged is probably the best thing he's ever done. Like that that was memorable, I feel. It was, definitely. He's you know, you know who he is. If you say the cab driver from Scrooge, you're like, Oh yeah. He's basically he's the guy who takes him to He's the ghost of Christmas past, no? He's the ghost of Christmas past. I thought he was the guy who takes them to all the different Oh, ghosts. maybe 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 that's yeah. true. I can't it's been remember. a long time since I watched Scrooged, but you know. Either way. Let's get on to the last song, Jet Boy. I said it up front that I had fewer notes as our list went on. All I had here was, at this point, everything kind of sounds the same. I'm tired. I felt I was tired too, but I felt this was kind of indicative of the second side, which is that I liked it better than the first side. I don't, you know, it wasn't amazing. I thought the chorus kick in was kind of rocking, had a little structure to it that was a little bit unexpected. This is the only one where I was tempted to write the word unexpected change anywhere <laughs> on, on the record. So... But it wasn't really a standout for me, but I I liked it better than the songs in the first half. Well, one of the reasons I included it on the focus list, number one, it's the last song on the album. So, I, I don't know. I, I would like to bookend an album. Uh, the other yeah. one is that I kind of just wanted to make fun of the fact that I feel like they got that one trick of doing that stop and then kind of starting back up again. And then they just hammer it to death for the entire song. <laughs> and it's like, if you did it one or two times, it would have been cool. Like, maybe do it once in the beginning or at least skip a couple of times. So he's like, he was my baby. And then they start again. It's like, by the end of the song, I was like, get another goddamn trick. It's not that impressive. It's really not a good trick. You can only use it like sparingly or unexpectedly. But once I start to expect it, I'm like, oh, that's just some hack bullshit. And the lyrics to the song are like complete nonsense. I feel like that's. They're all nonsense. Like, all of his lyrics no, are terrible on, nonsense. Let, let me bring up the, the karaoke feature on Spotify here. <laughs> well, I there's so many people that try to find depth in this stuff, and it's it's ridiculous, all right? 
On songs such as Subway Train and Trash, Johansson uses ambiguity as a lyrical mode. In Kogan's opinion, Johansson sings in occasionally unintelligible manner and writes in a perplexing fictional style that is lazy yet ingenious, <laughs> as it provides his lyrics with an abundance of emotional meaning and interpretation. You're half right. David never provides an objective framework. He's always jumping from voice to voice, so you're hearing a character addressing another character, or the narrator addressing the character, or the character or the narrator addressing us, all jammed up together, so you're hearing bits of conversations and bits of subjective description in no kind of chronological order. That doesn't sound good. It sounds no, like a, it's a mess. Yeah. It's just a mess that we're describing is a fucking mess, an unprofessional jumble of mess. And somehow I'm supposed to look at it like, ooh. And that's another one of those. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's another one of those examples where I'm sure the band themselves would, would be like, what do you like? I just made that up on the spot. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was I was flying sky high on cocaine and I was thinking about how, man, I'm kind of like a jet boy. And then I was like, yeah, there we go. I was 20. What do you want from me? Like, <laughs> I was 17 hours into an orgy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, good for them. I'm sure they had a ton of fun. Let's find out if we had a ton of fun listening to this album or not. All right. We're going to get to the voting here. The time that all of you listeners, I, I know, are so excited to, to find out what our opinions are. I'm going to throw it first over to Adam. Adam, don't keep me in suspense. I did not have fun listening to this album this week. This felt like a bit of a chore every time through. Rob had said something to the, ex- uh, to the extent of he had a hard time getting through the album all the way. I, I did as well. The one thing this album did was to defy logic and reason in that on a single album it had multiple lowest points <laughs> so i am going to say no you do not need to spend 42 minutes listening to this or hang on let me get let me get the full runtime here for, for my final comment yeah the 42 minutes and 44 seconds do something better read a book uh, watch scrooge <laughs> <laughs> all right rob let's hear it so I heard this genre described in many ways, proto-punk, of course, but sleaze rock stood out to me. And as astute listeners of the podcast might know, I have a little soft spot for sleaze rock. The first tape I ever bought, the first music I ever bought was Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. I feel like that is most certainly in the lineage of sleaze rock, along with bands like Poison, who I also loved back then. And ultimately... This band was rebelling against something. They were rebelling against the stuff that we all agree we like a lot. They were rebelling against Steely Dan, Led Zeppelin, Bowie, etc. To ultimately form something I did not personally enjoy. But I don't think it's about my enjoyment. I do think it's about the rock and roll canon. I do think it's about the spirit of rock and roll. And if nothing else, I think you should listen to this record to dispel some of the mythos around a band like this. So I'm certainly glad I did for that reason. And I have to say, I recommend it. Wow. Quite the journey there, Rob. You know, I had a tough time with this album. I listened to it a lot with my family. My wife, actually, when Vietnamese baby was on, was like, Oh, this song's pretty good. So I'll be getting divorced soon. (laughs) (laughs) It it was, uh, it was a hard listen for me. And uh, Rob, you are correct. That, the stuff that we like, they hated, and they made something that they liked, and I hated it. I did not like it one bit. I am also going to say that I think that you should listen to it, because like it or not, I think that they 
they spawned a genre. And we have a mutual friend, Rob and I, that is into, he's, he refers to himself as liking gutter punk music. And I played this for him and he had never heard it before. And he was like, I don't like this at all. But I think that the stuff that he likes now is just so much more of a more keen edged version of this. Like this is the first attempt at it and it's been refined over time. And I will, I will give it to him. They started a movement. I don't like the movement, but I'm also glad that I can intelligently talk shit on them now. So there you have it, dear listeners. We get a two out of three. You squeaked in there, New York Dolls. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. (laughs) Sound like Gollum. Uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) I'm sure the remaining, I think, three surviving members of New York Dolls would... uh, be happy to hear that they're on the list. Oh, I don't um, think so. I think Sylvain Sylvain's dead. Uh, Kane, oh, is Kane still around? I think Kane's still around, yeah. I, I think he might be dead. I, heard, I thought right after that reunion show he died. Is that true? Jesus Christ, hold on a second. Johansson's still alive. but I, And Johnny Oh, Dunders yeah, died. dude, he died in 2004 Young. at 55. Wow. Yeah. Okay, sorry, you're I right. mean, they lived fast. And, you know, we didn't talk about what happened after this record, but... It was a quick ride to the top and a quick fall to the bottom also. I don't yeah. even think... I think the record label dropped them before that second release, and they tried to tour around with some some help and get some get a new label or something. They ended up you know making another record, but they didn't really get much support for it, and then they just disbanded because it all happened in this, such a short amount of time, this phenomenon, so... Well, they basically at the beginning said that they just did it to get laid and they expected it was only going to last a couple of weeks. And then it sort of just kept working. And they're like, well, this trick just keeps working. So we're just going to ride this until it stops working. (laughs) But I I think I just think what's weird about that in the pantheon of man, I wish, you know, if you were in this band would be that it was very shortly after that, that punk became a thing. And they all treated these guys in their minds, at least like the elder statesman of this genre. Like they, if they had just held together, if they hadn't been ruthless alcoholics and addicts and had just held the band together a little longer, they probably could have made a lot more money and been a part of that movement and been like seen as, you know what I mean? They would have just been thought of differently. I got to tell you, it is really a shame that Arthur Kane was living essentially in like complete hard scrabble poverty and, you know, was a member of a band that was so influential. And, but again, these guys never really sold that, that many albums. This album to this day has still not gone gold. It hasn't sold 500,000 copies. So not certified gold. Yeah. They were like a local phenomenon. They're still, they remained kind of a local phenomenon. They were popular in New York, but it never really worked outside of New York. I think the other place sure. they were kind of popular was London, which is also where the punk movement was big. Yep. But, but there, that was the time though where, you know, if you're popular in New York, that's where all of the music media was coming out of. So you're popular there in New York. You're popular everywhere, essentially. That's like the only place that mattered. So one one last anecdote. Sorry, I know we've moved on, but I wanted to mention that a famous name from this movement, Malcolm McLaren, who ran a fashion boutique with his wife, Vivian Westwood, in London back in that day. He was a fan of theirs, and he's actually one of the guys that kind of tried to... He managed them in that latter part of their career when they didn't have a record label and was trying to get them started again. But ultimately, after they broke up, he went back to London, and he was like, I'm going to put together another band. It's kind of like a New York Dolls version 2. And in fact, Sylvain Sylvain was supposed to join that band. Never happened for whatever reason. And that band became the Sex Pistols. Hmm. Another band where they're like... 
uh, style and attitude gets you over the hump of not being able to play your instruments. <sighs> Before we move on, I just want to also point out, Rob, this is listed as Morrissey's favorite album ever. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know who's booshing who on that one, but <laughs> somebody's getting booshed. I don't support Morrissey's various life decisions, guys. <laughs> All right. But let's find out what we are going to listen to next week. We're going to pull that albinator out, give it a whirl. Maybe I'll sprinkle a little less cocaine on it this time and uh, <laughs> see what it is going to give us. So next week we will be listening to another self-titled Elvis Presley by Elvis Presley. Uh, was this even like... I don't even know. This seems like the kind of thing that might have just been like a compilation of a bunch of singles that he released that they packaged into an album posthumously or something. I don't know. Maybe. Um, it looks like it's listed as his first release, but yeah, that's I'd say that's probably likely. Okay. It's the famous, the fairly famous cover oh, with, with, him, the, with like the pink with the and green Yeah, that the Clash yeah. uh, referenced with their cover. Yeah. Is that late 40s or early 50s? The 50s for sure. 50s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because the, the the list itself only goes back to like 52 or something, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. This I'm excited about this one because clearly Elvis is a big part of the musical canon, but I personally know almost nothing about him. Same here. I know a couple. Right. I know his his Christmas songs <laughs> and uh, and Jailhouse Rock, and that's about Love Me Tender. So we shall in. learn. Suspicious together. Minds. That's a good one. He's got we a lot of hits. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah, right, I right. I drove past Graceland and was going to go in, but it was like $35. And I was like, fuck that. I am not paying $35 to see some dead guy's house that's a lot smaller than you think it would be. So there we go. Elvis Presley for next week. Awesome. I am excited about that one. As always, if you have something that you would like to let us know that we messed up, you have some hard opinions about the early 1970s music scene in New York or women's fashion, let us know. 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Leave us a review on however you're listening to this podcast. We'd love that. You know, Just write anything. Just give us some stars. It'd be great. We'd like to get the word out. And the best way you could do that is tell a friend. It really does help to get the message out there that... We have a lot of sometimes unfocused, but sometimes very specific complaints about these albums. And we're going we're to save you some time, you know? Don't listen to a 42-minute album. Go. Listen to an hour and 12 minutes of us bitching about a 42-minute album. Good plan. Yeah. Yes. So thank you again, as always, for being a listener. Until next week, I've been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Rob. Bash! <laughs> 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 <laughs>